Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage of Monaco 24. This week, we look at the dispute between Ron DeSantis and Disney World. If it were a true sovereign state, it would be one of Earth's 20 most touristed countries, slotting in roughly between Japan and Canada. Plus, we look at the top songs in Togo. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the dispute between Ron DeSantis versus Disney World. It was our Foreign Desk Explainer episode this week. Over the past year, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, has been removing self-governing rights from Disney World and imposing government oversight on the parks. Andrew Muller explains why. It is easy to make fun of Florida. The man who wanted to run from Florida to Bermuda in a bubble on the ocean has been reined in by the Coast Guard. This is why we've done it so often before and why, by golly, we're going to do it again. Florida, such a prolific furnisher of weird news stories that Florida license plates really should declare it the and finally state, has declared war on Disney World. Put em up, put em up. It seems an unlikely conflict between a surreal theme park populated by absurd and grotesque characters who caper and romp to amuse and delight and Disney World. Thanks for coming out. We're here all week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed into Florida law a bill which will give Florida's government further control over Disney's Florida theme parks via a five-member board appointed by the governor. You may not be shocked to learn that the inaugural board will be entirely composed of DeSantis donors and or allies. Yeah, I guess I can say that. Yeah, that's right, really. True. I mean, yeah. it sounds like him, Would not it? be surprised yeah. at all. Sounds like him. Yeah. However, the reasonable listener may find themselves wondering how a major corporate entity was operating outside the governance of the state in the first place. We, much like an unemployable actor sweating inside an enormous mouse costume, are here to help. For more than half a century, the Walt Disney World Territory in Florida's Reedy Creek Improvement District has been a self-governing entity. Holding 111 square kilometers of territory, it's nearly twice the size of San Marino and not much smaller than Liechtenstein, both of which get a seat at the United Nations. Walt Disney World Territory controls its own utilities, roads, rivers and waste management and runs its own emergency services. It is exempt from some building codes. Technically, if Disney felt like it, it could have built its own goofy-themed nuclear plant or a Donald Duck International Airport. Disney's special arrangement with Florida began in 1967. Disney had picked its moment to pitch a monument to libertarian capitalism. Florida, which like much of the South had taken a while to forgive the Republican Party for Abraham Lincoln, had elected its first GOP governor since Reconstruction. Governor Claude Kirk was happy enough for Disney to do what it pleased on a stretch of unpromising swamp on the outskirts of Orlando, reasoning that they might build an immense boon to Florida's economy or be taken by alligators in the attempt. But either way, it wouldn't bankrupt Orange and Osceola counties, and Disney remained on the hook for state and local taxes. 
Hello everyone, I'm Julie Andrews and I'm here at the opening of the Walt Disney World in Florida. It has proved, on balance, a win-win. Disney World has been a colossal tourist draw for Florida. In 2019, Magic Kingdom alone pulled in north of 20 million people. Though Disney World shows no sign of reacting to Governor DeSantis' onslaught by hoisting the flag of secession, if it were a true sovereign state, it would be one of Earth's 20 most touristed countries, slotting in roughly between Japan and Canada. Along the journey, Disney World has employed hundreds of thousands of Floridians, around 77,000 right now. Which brings us to the question of why Governor DeSantis is bearing down upon this prolifically golden egg-laying goose, bearing a cleaver and a demeanour of vengeance. (coughs) This has been rumbling on a while. DeSantis signed an earlier bill revoking Disney World's self-governing status last year. While there is always a case for asserting the primacy of an elected government over a corporation that wants to do as it pleases, it is not one that is usually argued by Republicans such as DeSantis, who tend to regard such interventions as intolerable trussing in red tape of the spirit of free enterprise. DeSantis's grudge against Disney is a consequence of Disney's objections to another law signed by DeSantis in 2022, which substantially prohibits discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in Florida primary schools. Disney, if only after pressure from its employees, opposed what had become as the Don't Say Gay law. Today, dozens of Disney employees walked off the job. DeSantis struck back and has now struck again. We probably do have to consider the possibility that DeSantis is acting according to sincerely held principles, and his record on LGBT rights is indeed miserable. But this latest assault on Disney seems more like an opportunistic raid amid a wider campaign in the culture war that DeSantis is making a motif of his governorship. In law and in rhetoric, DeSantis has defined himself against the menace of woke. Florida, he has thundered, is where woke goes to die. Along with everybody's grandparents. DeSantis may believe this as well. It takes all sorts. But DeSantis also knows that the summoning of this bogeyman, though I suspect we probably have to refer to it as a bogey person now, honestly, world's gone mad, etc., plays well with the seething, credulous, fox-watching yahoos comprising much of the Republican base, and there is a presidential election next year. DeSantis has not yet declared himself, but is polling respectably, and as of last November's gubernatorial election, is a proven winner in Florida, without which it is nigh impossible for Republicans to take the White House. Though DeSantis' fellow Florida man, Donald Trump, remains the presumptive GOP nominee, DeSantis can sell himself as essentially the same thing, but less obviously compromised or unhinged, with a respectable military service record, a demonstrable understanding of government, and a wife who doesn't seem to hate him. And if DeSantis can't make the top of the ticket, a vice president roughly half the age of the president is a politician with a future. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. 
And now from the world of print on the stack, I spoke to Jay Fielden on the state of men's magazines today. Jay Fielden was a former editor-in-chief of Esquire, Town & Country, and Men's Vogue. I worked at The New Yorker when I got out of college. I got a job as a typist, which was one of the ways in back then, meaning you would retype the edited manuscripts at the time into a computer system. You know, they were kind of moving away from cutting and pasting into computers, if you can believe it. This was 1992. Uh, now it feels like a thousand years ago. And um, and, and I eventually became a, an, a, a young editor in the fiction department. I stayed at The New Yorker for about nine years or something like that. And I had come out of a college experience that having studied English literature and etc. I, I, you know, loved poetry and I thought a lot about poetry and I even began writing poetry and I published some, a poem back in that time when I worked at the New Yorker around 1996-97 or something and and then circumstances kind of pulled my focus in other directions. I, I went on to be the arts editor of Vogue and then I created Men's Vogue and edited that and, you know, went on to Town & Country and then Esquire and, and I just, even though I've always been a writer and I've tried to keep my quill, you know, wet, so to speak, I I wasn't really paying attention to poetry. And partly it's because I think I convinced myself that, you know, is it a relevant genre of literature anymore? I mean, of course it's relevant, but I mean, does it have enough impact? It's, it takes so much time to write it, at least for me. It just felt like, I don't know, why. every time I sat down to write a poem, the thought bubble would pop up in my brain of like, why are you doing this? I have three kids. I have all these things going on. You know, how can you carve out time for something like this? Are you being silly? Is this like, you know, watercolors on Sunday or something? <laughs> but I went back when I left, after I left Esquire, I went back to kind of immersing myself in some of the things that I loved so long ago and, and reread a lot of things. And I was always a, a big lover of, of John Milton and Milton, not only as a poet, but Milton as a figure. He's a fascinating character and, and not just poetry written in that period, but I, I loved T.S. Eliot, I loved Elizabeth Bishop, I loved a lot of different poets. And so anyway, it just came back to me, like, why did you ever let that go? You know, you enjoy it, etc. So I uh, I started writing poetry again, and and that poem appeared in The New Yorker, and I, you know, continue to do that now. I'm, I'm I guess I'm dedicated to trying to, um, you know, maybe even write enough poems where I will have a book one day. So that wasn't exactly a haiku as an answer. That was that was the perfect answer as well. And 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 again, talking about literature, I mean, you edited uh, Squire. I mean, the title is very related to the world of literature as well. So, is that something that always attracted you for all the titles that you've edited in a way? Yes, of course. I mean, I I grew up in Texas, in San Antonio, a pretty sophisticated town, but you know, not New York. And I got kind of bit by the bug of writing uh, when I was about 14 or 15, having before that time not had really almost zero interest in books. I was not the kid who read a lot, you know, as a youngster. I just, I didn't want to read. I didn't, I wasn't attracted to it. I was much more interested in being outside and not being in a classroom and certainly not doing anything a teacher wanted me to do. And, but something happened, a kind of epiphany of some kind, some some moment where I fell off my horse, you know, so to speak, and a, a ray of light hit me in the eyes. And then I then I became a reader and, and really wanted to be a writer. And it set me on this kind of it gave me a compass point that pointed to New York, pointed to the New Yorker especially, 
and and Esquire because I when I when I got that job as a typist at the New Yorker, I had applied for a job as an assistant at Esquire and didn't get that job. So I ended up working at the New Yorker instead. And then many years later, coming back to Esquire in a kind of ironic way. But those titles and even even when I got to edit Men's Vogue, create that and edit it, you know, I wanted to find the right way to, to always think about what the title, what the mission of the title is, and then create the right kind of writing for it that would, of course, in some ways, reflect my taste and my ambitions, but, but not be just a, a show offy or, or silly, I, I don't know, indulgence on my own part, you know? So I think when I, when I did Men's Vogue, I, I did actually get amazing, amazing people to, to write for the magazine, Robert Hughes, Jeffrey Steingarten, a number of the New Yorker writers, because I'd known them really an amazing group. And yet I think it was appropriate to that magazine, which was very much aimed at a kind of pretty sophisticated guy who had already grown out of some of the other men's magazines and had kind of didn't have something to read that really was both stimulating intellectually, but also really good looking and about style and, and not really apologetic about liking nice things. I think the same thing kind of happened at town and country. I was able to infuse that with the right kind of literary touch, not trying to be too heavy handed, but getting really interesting, well-known writers to write for it. And then of course, when you get to Esquire, you kind of have it all come together. You have a magazine that has the historical horsepower that any magazine in America ever had, if not more. Uh, Esquire, unfortunately, has not been great at projecting it as much as, say, The New Yorker has. But Esquire, you know, had Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Faulkner from the beginning. And then as you go along in its history, you're going to get to Joe Didion and Gary Wills and Norman Mailer and Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and... <laughs> You know, it's uh, Cormac McCarthy, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, it goes all the way up until I would say, I hope, you know, it, it was a very award-winning magazine even in this century. So I, I really love that it was a magazine that had made a case for itself for many decades that you could be both a guy interested in the way you dressed and the things you ate and, you know, maybe what kind of car you drove, and what watch you wore and those kinds of things, but could also be quite serious about ideas and writing and that kind of thing. And I mean, the, no better example was uh, what is there than Saul Bellow writing, I believe, in the 80s about his favorite spaghetti recipe, you know, and not having to feel like he was exposing himself as a shallow person who only wanted to write about food. <laughs> so I love that combination. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And every day on The Globalist, we do newspaper reviews with some special guests. We chose a highlight here from Agnes Poirier, journalist and author, who shared some interesting stories with us. Since the beginning of the year, it hasn't um, rained very much. And actually, we've just uh, lived through 33 consecutive days of dry spell. Um, so it's not raining, which is, you know, as you say, wonderful. You wake up, beautiful, crispy uh, light, um, but it's actually not good news. Uh, President Macron was visiting the uh, the farming uh, fair at the weekend and he started talking about water sobriety. So you may remember last summer when he talked about in the, uh, energy sobriety and the French started, got the message and started saving electricity. Well, he says we need to start 
very, very soon, because otherwise um, this summer is going to be even more complicated than last year when there were already severe uh, droughts. So the prefects of the most affected regions, um, for the moment the south of France, are going to meet this week, but also farmers, industrialists and mayors, because what we are contemplating, not only, you know, um, the fact that we want we will be forbidden from watering our gardens or or washing our cars or filling swimming pools, uh, but also we'll, we'll, we need to start saving water uh, and tap water. Otherwise, there are going to be water cuts over the summer. Indeed, what practically can people do? Have they given any indication about how they plan for what is expected to be a problematic summer? Well, no. Now is more about words, about messaging, about, okay, this is starting now. We need to have a plan. We need to anticipate uh, because uh, basically, you know, the winter is is a, a key key moment when ground waters and, and rivers recover to their usual levels. Um, also, uh, farmers are going to have a priority in the, in the use of water. So, you know, uh, water is going to be rationed. But for for the moment, it's a question of uh, preparing uh, minds to to uh, uh, that uh, eventuality. Uh, let's move on to the the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is the moment when the press examines the press and the way that um, coverage of the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion has been handled. There's an article in L'Express today which which describes it, the, the the way that people are describing it on the television. Well, if you watch French uh, news channel, you will have noticed them. Them, uh, they are not, uh, you know, military journalists. Uh, they are not experts from think tanks. They are former French army generals, and some of them have four stars. Um, and they've become the, the sort of, uh, you know, like the epidi- epidemiologists during uh, the COVID pandemic and COVID lockdown. They are the experts that the French public uh, love seeing and actually uh, they've become so popular they are stopped and recognized in the streets and I must say they are extremely good. Um, there is for instance Michel Yakovlev uh, a former four-star general and he is specifically asked to interview the Russian ambassador, embassy's spokesperson on television and needless to say the, the Russian diplomat didn't fare very well because Basically, those um, uh, now TV experts, but really uh, French uh, generals, uh, are very frank. You know, they, the public enjoy their forthrightness and extremely knowledgeable uh, as well uh, about war. And they have contacts, of course, in the military. I mean, they say, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they are retired generals, but if they want to check that their analysis on the ground is actually uh, close to uh, reality, they can actually just... Uh, give a call and get uh, some precision. So what is interesting in that article for Express is we also know how much they are paid. So if you're a four-star French general uh, commenting uh, on the war in Ukraine, well, you get between 200 and 500 euros a day. Uh, And if you work exclusively for one news channel, um, you might be paid up to 5,000 euros a month. But it means... uh, being on duty 24 hours a day. I'm not sure, Anissa. Are you thinking of a, of a, a sort of a, a, a second job here? <laughs> not at all. No. Could you imagine if we had to go? Um, I mean, doesn't it slightly set a strange tone, given the fact that um, when you do get military experts and you get former 
former members of the military speaking publicly, they have that clinical approach, um, which talks about strategy and tactics and deployment and what have you. And does it at all detract from the reality of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine? Well, no, because obviously, um, you know, there are correspondents and war reporters and uh, a lot of space is given to them. So it's not as if it, it you know, that that's all the French public was served to on, on television and, the, you know, the war was only uh, seen and commented in pure abstract and strategic uh, terms. So it's the combination uh, that is very, uh, um, very good and much appreciated. Uh, by the public because they feel a deep knowledge of of war and the theatre of war and and strategy. So it's it's a very good combination. Um, let's move on to another story in L'Express, which is a different and nonetheless equally French story. The fact that um, a 24-year-old author suddenly becomes an, an enormous superstar in France, that is something that could arguably really only happen where you are. But she is a genuine, not just a phenom- phenom- phenomenon, but she's rather mysterious too. She's very mysterious. Um, her name sounds American, Sarah Rivens, but uh, we know that she's Algerian and she lives in Algeria and she's very young. She's only 24. Uh, on social network, she's known as, um, I quote, the blurred girl um, and um, her specialty is uh, dark romance but you know so far until last year she was only publishing her you know her, her trilogies of uh, sometimes uh, more uh, you know series of dark romance um, online and and for free and we know there is an enormous appetite uh, among young adults or teenagers for that kind of uh, literature and uh, that is consumed or read purely on screens but some of them um, are poached by uh, publishing uh, companies and uh, Sarah Rivens was um, poached by Hachette in France and uh, the second tome of her trilogy called Captive in just four weeks, has already sold almost 100,000 copies in France. Uh, so there's some interest about this uh, uh, young woman, and but apparently she's really uh, keeping quite shy and, and keeping her distance with journalists. And so for the moment, we won't know anything about her more than what I've just told you. And that will arguably make us buy her books. Um, just tell us, have, have you read any of her work? And if so, is it any good? No, I haven't. Uh, I've just discovered her like a lot of people. I'm probably not in the uh, age target. You know, it's uh, young adult dark romance uh, literature. And uh, so now that you've asked me, I'm going to have a look Wonderful. And, uh, and report back. Finally, tell us a little bit more about what this now means for her, because one thing that is fabulous about the French media is that when you do get authors who who hit the headlines and who become famous, they then become integral parts of of France's discursive culture that you will see authors regularly popping up on mainstream television shows. The fact that this woman has decided to shy away from the spotlight, does that make any difference? Or are we just waiting until she emerges and then hops onto a panel at about eight o'clock one evening on television? 
Well, what's interesting is that uh, although her books um, are published in France to great, uh, um, you know, acclaim, at least uh, a lot of people buy them, uh, and she's been translated into a few other languages in Europe, in uh, in Polish, in in Serb, I'm told, uh, she is not published, uh, or even uh, you know, her works are not even accessed in Algeria. So I uh, I guess we will know more about her if she ever uh, crosses the Mediterranean and, and decides uh, for her career to settle in France. But uh, it's probably uh, better for her to be anonymous while living in Algeria and, and writing that kind of, uh, um, you know, young adult literature. And now from The Urbanist this week, uh, we found out that nature and cities are intrinsically connected. What lessons can we learn from the past about building green spaces in the future? We spoke to author Ben Wilson to explore his new book, Urban Jungle, Wilding the City. You know, I think it's something that's almost written out of history of cities because we're, we're obviously much more interested in the kind of the human activity in a way. And so this is part of the point of the book, really, is to look at how cities interact with their environment across time. And it's a very kind of fast changing, evolving thing, like the history of cities and, and ecosystems. I mean, one example I, I'd give is London. It, up until the Middle Ages, it was surrounded not by fields, but by forests. So there was a kind of wild landscape on the edge of London. And that's because cities needed natural resources and particularly wood for fires, for industry, for you know smithies and for building purposes. So having large forests was really important. And London lost its forest quite early because it moved to coal, which is a forerunner of things to come. Whereas on continental Europe, whilst forests are being cut down in the countryside, they're actually growing on the margins of cities. Cities really, really needed, you know, there was a much more sort of organic society. And it's really the Industrial Revolution that kind of changes that. So that there's a sort of idea of a sort of porousness between city, a compact kind of medieval or early modern city and its surrounding countryside. And, and cities often gave way to kind of wildness not to kind of Gainsborough landscape of fields. And that these were resources for people to go and glean firewood, to graze animals and to go for recreation in areas which had a kind of character of wildness. It's interesting because also as this kind of world of forest on the doorstep retreats, it leaves behind these tendrils of vegetation, of scruffiness, of urban mess that also don't, don't get to last long because city officials, especially in the West, they become a bit more prim and people want these vestiges of scruffy of scraps of land to be mown and, and be more kempt, as it were. Yeah, exactly. I think cities are really interesting from an ecological point of view because all the industry, all the kind of things that come into the city bring seeds and packing cases, things that come with trade, breweries, things like that, spread their seeds out. So what you get in cities is seeds that come from all around the world. You get a very fast changing thing, but it leaves a kind of scruffiness, a kind of, you know, things that people saw, were, which were once useful. I think this is part of the history. Plants that once people used in the pot suddenly become sort of signs of neglect and dereliction. And I think that's very much part and parcel with how we kind of saw nature in the cities, that what was a resource becomes highly polluted disease-ridden animals in cities, all the sort of pigs and horses and things like that spread zoonotic diseases. And there is a movement in cities that were had these very degraded ecosystems, especially in the 19th century after industrialization. There's a desire to sort of strip out nature. And if you think about, you know, manifestations of nature in the city from the hanging gardens of Babylon 
onwards is a kind of perfected nature, a kind of nature that's kind of sealed off from its kind of wildness and kind of made not urban, but kind of urbane nature, a kind of, you know, where you can control it behind the kind of railings of a park where, you know, you get a highly idealised view of kind of nature perfected and tidied up. And a kind of sort of horror of what's seen as plants of dereliction, which, of course, are plants that we kind of bring with us and kind of thrive in building sites, neglected areas of which there are huge amounts in cities. You know, you take away the kind of the human activity and the places sort of well trodden and well driven. And there's vast areas of kind of marginal land, which kind of teams of nature. But I guess it's sort of built into our cultures that we see those things as sort of symbolising not the abundance of nature, but a kind of social breakdown. I guess even now when we think of rewilding our cities, of the need for green space, we tend to think of the, the, the new park practitioners, the people who are building public realm that looks probably quite nice. But what's fascinating in your book is you, you give a, the great example of what's happened in the areas around LaGuardia and JFK in New York, where you'll never regain what was lost in the draining of swamplands, but actually nature does take hold even on top of actually rather polluted soil and chaos. And maybe that if we find some acceptance of this, do you think that's a way of us moving forwards? The great kind of pioneering studies of urban ecology really come from the Second World War, when there was huge amounts of destruction in cities and areas that people had seen as very sterile suddenly kind of bloom with life. And I mean, of course, that nature was always there. But it, because it symbolises kind of recovery from a disaster that people were suddenly interested. Berlin's a good example because it, you know, the realities of the Cold War meant it was sealed off. So people went to study the kind of very fast changing kind of nature that manifests itself in cities and in sort of neglected sites. And the kind of plants that kind of are able to survive disasters of which the city could be seen as, as a disaster for nature. But nonetheless, there are plants that come and and exist amongst us. Now, whether we can kind of get rid of our kind of aesthetic preferences for the kind of neat, regulated, almost sanitised kind of city and coexist or learn again to coexist with kind of wildness in cities is entirely up to us. But we know the kind of plants from all these studies from the Second World War onwards, we know the kind of plants and also animals that can live with us. And there's lots of examples where you can create urban meadows based you know, on our sort of ecological knowledge of what thrives in cities and try and make it a kind of beautiful landscape. All those kind of grass verges that could be converted into sort of micro meadows or even, you know, tolerating building sites. You know, the cities are in a constant state of metamorphosis. You know, there's lots and lots of building sites left over. In the Netherlands, they kind of incentivize what they call temporary nature, where they let a building site lay fallow for a few years because that's when you get a sort of fast succession of plants. The other way to look at it is we kind of need these plants as a way of kind of dealing with climate change and the flooding of cities that we need to kind of break up the kind of the hard surface of cities to find places for water to go. And these kind of tough urban plants that have adapted themselves to live with us or have come across the world and kind of seen the city as an opportunity, they're the kind of plants that actually will fill those gaps. And if we manage, it sounds ironic, you know, or contradictory, but the idea of kind of managed wildness is something that people are experimenting with and finding new places in cities, including on rooftops. You know, in Australia, they, they're sort of wilding all those huge amount of area, which is sort of redundant in a way, which is the kind of areas alongside roads and roundabouts and things like that. It's just, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do, I think, in cities is, or people who are far-sighted, is to exploit these empty spaces, these uh, edges that kind of run alongside our activities and create these kind of wonderful marginal land, which 
crisscross the city like a kind of green grid. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And for the first time this week on my show, The Global Countdown, I decided to look at the Togolese charts. You're in for a treat, from great gospel to Afropop. I always forget whenever asked to do Thursday's briefing that I'm going to have to put myself and indeed the listeners through Fernando Augusto Pacheco's Global Countdown. Fernando, welcome. Where are we going today? Well, because it's been a while since we've done those, I decided to choose a country that I never actually did on the Global Countdown. And they're becoming rarer and rarer, I have to say. It's Togo. Togo. A a, a country I will confess about which I know not a great deal. It is in West Africa, I know that much. And I know the name of its capital city, but that's only because you asked me about an hour ago and I said, I've got no idea and you told me. It's it's slow, man. So, shall we have a look what are they dancing, actually? Uh, you yeah. know, I say dancing. Maybe there are tragic ballads here as well. <laughs> we never know. We never know. Uh, but at number five, this is a pan-African hit. Uh, she was born in Benin, but she's Nigerian, really. From She was born out of uh, Nigerian parents. It's Iris Star with Rush. Let's have a listen. Dance like Bukuli. Steady green like broccoli. Steady on my grind, oh yeah, what they want telling me? Could you not my fantasy? They want to check if my dad be no rush. But he did rush, he did rush by the way, he be much. Now go to make my dad be the rush. He got money with us. Iris Star there. That's doing numbers all over Africa. Oh, yes. I mean, more than 102 million views on YouTube as well. And you know what, Andrew? I feel that Nigerian beats, they are being exported to Europe, to the US. They're becoming so influential these days. We, we have been talking a fair bit about Nigeria mm. on our shows across the last couple of weeks due to their presidential election. We did a whole thing on it on the Foreign Desk. And the, and the more you talk about Nigeria and the more you read about Nigeria, the less you understand why Nigeria is not already an enormous economic economic and cultural powerhouse. It is huge um, and colossally important. And yeah, I would be unsurprised if we begin to hear more of it. And for the record, I did not violently object to that track. See, I knew that. I, knew, mm. I, I have a feeling that you might enjoy actually the, okay. the Togolese charts. Well, I'm, I'm strapped in now. Let's go. What's at number four? <laughs> number four is an interesting one. We're staying actually in Nigeria. Uh, he actually performed at the World Cup last year. So it's another big name uh, there. Although this is a romantic song, the name of the track, I don't know why is it called like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his name is Kiz Daniel, uh, featuring Empire. The song's called Cough. Let's have a listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to carry my love away to a place she loves. It's called cough, but I, I saw the lyrics. It's about, you know, loving his wo- woman. You know, there's nothing about cough. I mean, at some point he does this in the song, like, <clears throat> so maybe it's not quite a cough. It's just a... A, a, a nervous throat clearing before exactly. he unburdens himself of his devotional. <laughs> but it would be a terrible name if it's called nervous, you know, uh, clearing. It, it, it is It is very hard to cough and look or sound smooth while doing it. And some uh, little trivia about Kiz Daniel as always. Father of triplets. Is he really? 
really? Yes, it's quite rare. Imagine. Uh, I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I cannot even begin to. Well, one must therefore hope that that is also doing numbers, that track. He's going to need the royalties. Exactly. Oh, yes. Uh, and at number three? Uh, well, finally, we have a Togolese artist. And it's interesting because, as we're talking here, Togo is a fairly small country. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, some countries, you know, all the artists, they are from outside the country. But actually, they have a very strong music scene there. Uh, and this track has been defined as, according to the singer, as an anthem of the hustlers. Okay. Uh, and I'll explain after why. This is Cephalo and Willy Baby with I Believe. Avant de quitter, je veux donner mon best. Même sans jouer jusqu'au bout, parce que je ne sais pas quand est-ce que s'arrête mon cœur. Lorsqu'on a personne, la vie c'est l'enfer. Rien ne motive, puisque le prix du travail bien accompli. La vie que je mène me fait prendre de l'estime. Je me débrouille mieux que tous ces héritiers. That's, I believe, not to be confused with the Righteous Brothers or R.E.M. songs exactly. of the same title. Young fellow there has a lot to say. Oh, yes. And this is a message of hope for those in a difficult financial situation. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the video, because there's a beautiful Ferrari there, and I wonder if it's an aspirational song, you know. So, that, you know, don't worry if you're struggling a little bit. Perhaps one day you're going to get your Ferrari. Do you reckon number three in Togo buys you a Ferrari? I, I'm I'm doubtful, to be honest. I mean, that's that might be difficult. He doesn't have actually the numbers of Iris Star or, or Kiss Daniel, but that might change uh, after uh, the exposure you, to the global countdown. <laughs> are you doubting, Fernando, that it is in fact his Ferrari in the video? It might not be, actually. I should, yeah. I should do some research on you that, sh- You really <laughs> should have looked that one up, Fernando. Yes. I'm, I'm deducting points for that. Uh, at number two. Uh, well, in Togo as well, gospel. They love gospel music. And you know what? Some gospel is very nice. I don't and mind some gospel myself. Absolutely. And even the name of this track is by Centrinus Raphael. It's called Leminance or Eminence. It's about family love. I quite enjoy the jazzy beats as well. Let's have a listen. <laughs> I don't say this often in this slot, but I outright liked that track. Me too. I mean, that that's it's it's got that gospel thing with that, but wedded to that kind of I guess languid West African sound that we have discussed a few times before. That's that is not bad at all. I agree with you a hundred percent. And if you want a little bit more of that, Andrew, I do. we have number one. And besides everything you said, the amazing kind of beat from West Africa as well. I have to say they look incredibly chic. I might coined then the term gospel chic because it sang in a church and they look amazing. You, they, you genuinely should come to the Methodist church at the end of my street here in London which I believe has a largely West African congregation. Uh, on the rare occasions I'm up early enough on Sunday morning to see them come or go. It is a treat. They look fantastic. You know what? I might take the offer, Andrew. But first, this very stylish song by the Togolese group Tufang, C'est pas normal, It's not normal. Flash, cash, send money Manger la vie, il n'y a pas souci Bessie, hold the man Signer le chèque, j'ai ma tonne de Arguably somewhat frenetic for my particular yes. tastes. I like the number two track better. Well, I do like this one because, you know, you can pray to God but dance at the same time. I love it. You're doing two well, things multi- at the same multitasking. time. Multitasking. Multitasking. I love multitasking. So. <laughs> Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you as always.
and our fashion editor Natalie Teodosi has been very busy this week covering fashion weeks for us, from London to Milan and Paris. On this report, she talks about the business and sustainability of fashion weeks and the styles that have caught her eye. It is a very exciting time of year. It's it's a time to discover new talents and draw inspiration. And that's what really happened in London this year. There was a lot of young designers that are really taking over London Fashion Week. And that's that's what London has always been known for. But these last few years, especially, a lot of new talent has been coming up. But also Burberry, it was back on the schedule and they had a big new debut with a new designer, Daniel Lee, a new CEO. So a completely new strategy and hopefully some better days for brand made in Britain. And we've also moved to Milan after which had a lot more focus on the bigger brands. So there you see a lot more from Prada, Giorgio Armani. That's the players that are really taking over the scene and the week. And a lot more of the international buyers are there. And it's, it's a lot more business oriented mm. because the budgets are higher and the stakes are higher as well. Well, talking of high stakes, it's, it's interesting, especially on this program, when we talk to fashion brands, reinvented brands or, or, or new startups, there's always this conversation about sustainability and in particular how increasing seasonlessness can help to drive that, to stop so much dead stock and all the rest of it. Do you hear, do you see that as you travel around, that that's on the agenda for people, this idea of trying, even as people are, prom- are showing new season couture and clothes, they want to talk about trying to be more season less in terms of their approach? Definitely. I think it is being a big part of the conversation and a lot more brands are now trying to show more classic garments and a more just timeless way of dressing. It is a bit of a paradox because fashion weeks themselves are built on this idea of renewal of seasons, showing something new and and encouraging people to keep shopping and, and buying new things for their wardrobes. But with sustainability being now top of the agenda and the fashion industry really being criticized for this constant renewal and the waste that, that that it produces, it has become more of a focus. And not every brand, but a lot more brands are trying to turn their attention to classic, timeless garments. And instead of just changing everything every six months, just investing in craft, in artisans and improving the quality, playing with material innovation, much more than just trends. Well, I love that. And and it ties so closely into the sort of monocle value set, which is often exactly. about buying less, but buying better and a more accessible, you know, wearable styles, which I think people who read the magazine will recognise. But just on the sort of trend side, were you struck by anything in particular in terms of looks or other aesthetic pivots in terms of the season that we're seeing that might set the agenda in terms of what people can expect to see, not just on catwalks, but also on the high streets as well soon? I think a lot of brands are trying to revive the 1990s, which is not necessarily a great thing, <laughs> but we will be seeing a lot more of it, I think, come next summer and next winter as well. And it it is a trend that has a lot of divided opinion, Gucci in particular, which is going into a new direction with a new creative director starting in September, has been looking back to its glory days with Tom Ford in the 90s and, and bringing back some of those looks 
looks, but then you we, we will also be seeing a lot of elegant and timeless clothing that we've been speaking about from people like Armani and Prada and Bottega Veneta that I think our listeners or people that have a bit more of a the monocle aesthetic would appreciate. You're listening to The Curator. We have a lovely recipe for you with our spin-off show of the menu, Food Neighborhoods. This one is from Sami Tamimi. The Palestinian chef, food writer and restaurateur shares a great recipe for the classic Middle Eastern side dish, spicy new potatoes. Hi, my name is Sami Tamimi. I'm a chef, restaurateur and author. Today I'm going to go through a recipe for uh, spicy new potatoes with lemon and herbs. It's a recipe from my latest cookbook, Palestine. It's quite a really kind of easy uh, recipe that full of flavor and we all need a carb or some kind of potato dish that goes with everything. And it goes from fried egg to any, any main that you want to serve it with. So we start with preheating the oven on 200 Celsius fan. And then in a frying pan, we heat three t- tablespoons of olive oil, one teaspoon of cumin, and one teaspoon of coriander seeds, roughly or coarsely uh, ground. Follow that seven cloves of garlic that been peeled and thinly sliced. Cook that for a minute or so until the garlic start to get a bit of color. And then we add uh, one chili that been thinly sliced and 200 grams of cherry tomatoes left whole. Toast that until the tomatoes start to slightly burst. And then we add potatoes, a bit of sugar, just to cut the acidity of the um, tomatoes. One teaspoon of salt, and a generous ground black pepper. We toss it for a couple of minutes, and then if your pan is heat resistant, then we just stick the pan into the oven uh, that we've already been heated up. If not, move it into a baking dish or tray and cook it until the potatoes are done. It takes between 35 to 40 minutes. Toss kind of halfway through just a couple of times just to make sure that it cooks evenly and it gets nice color and crispy. And then we remove it from the oven, let it cool down for five minutes. And then we add lemon zest, lemon juice, lots of chopped coriander and dill. And here we have it. Enjoy it. And from Toll Stories this week, Gitanjali Krishna visits the so-called healthiest building in Delhi to find out how greenery is helping to fight back against air pollution. Nehru Place is Delhi's best-known grey market. It's a concrete jungle of dusty buildings and courtyards that are so crowded that the pedestrian traffic jams echo the gridlocks on the road. Here, hawkers sell second-hand clothing, high-street rip-offs, dubious iPhones, pirated software, and everything in between. Endless construction and thousands of corporate cigarette breaks make the air in the grey market too grey to breathe. 
and in this urban wasteland is a building that's famous for having the cleanest air in town the paharpur business center or pbc in short i go to nehru place to look for the building and find i'm lost so i ask yusuf a shifty vendor who's approached me with a broken metal tray full of knockoff hp printer inks do you know where it is he says you mean that nice building with lots of plants and points me in the right direction that sums up the pbc perfectly this nice building with lots of plants is the brainchild of delhi businessman kamal mittal who was told by doctors many years ago that delhi's air was toxic for him as it is for everybody else mittal did some digging and found that by judiciously planting the right plants in the right numbers he could actually grow his own clean air in his office building in nehru place he found that three commonly found indian plants money plants areca palms and the unfortunately named mother-in-law's tongue or sansevieria most effectively absorb pollutants and release clean air in his now famous ted talk mittal says that four shoulder high plants are enough to generate pure air for one individual this is what he has done in pbc the business center today has more plants than people and a patented rooftop air purification system that washes and filters the air before it's further purified through these plants it's as pure mittal says in his ted talk as the air on the swiss alps inside the building you're likely to hear kenny g's saccharine sax piped on hidden speakers instead of swiss cowbells and the air definitely feels different more humid perhaps than delhi's dry air in february more important it smells fresh which as any delhiite will attest is not something that we are used to and for this they charge twice the rent charged by neighboring buildings saying that pbc's healthier office environment can potentially increase productivity and reduce absenteeism they quote a 2016 study that has found that cognitive performance scores of people who work in green environments are double those who work in conventional spaces but the question is how do we know the air purification strategy works way back in 1989 nasa presented preliminary data on the ability of some common plants to remove organic chemicals from indoor air however the data applies less to houses with windows and more to small sealed chambers similar to spacecraft with its hermetically sealed plant filled and strangely people free interiors so at odds with the cacophony of nehru place pbc does feel vaguely like outer space so perhaps the nasa research does apply to it and then of course they measure air quality daily and have been independently rated among the healthiest office buildings of delhi outside i bump into yusuf again what was it like he asks me i'll never be allowed inside so you might as well describe it to me I tell him that I've learned we can all manufacture our own clean air with just four tall plants. He laughs. Only rich people can think of such things. Now if I had the luxury of space in my shanty for four tall plants, I'd be way more likely to plonk an extra mattress there and ask my no good brother back home in our village in Bihar to occupy it and earn some money instead. And finally, on the curator, our on this day historical feature reflects on the false dawn as it turned out 
of supersonic air travel. The world is about to become a smaller place. Soon you'll be able to travel a mile every three seconds. Well over 20 miles in just one minute. That was the idea, and for a time, the reality. The phenomenal Concorde from British Airways. And let's enjoy a bit more of that fanfare for the future mid-70s synthesizer. Concorde flew for the first time on this day in 1969 from Toulouse Airport. Captain André Turka, a veteran of World War II and Indochina, at the controls. Four months before Apollo 11 took men to the moon, this seemed like the 21st century, arriving a few decades earlier than scheduled. 193 feet long, 38 feet tall, with a wingspan of 84 feet. Vital statistics of an Anglo-French lady who was all dressed up and ready to go places on the biggest date of her life. They don't write voiceovers like that anymore. It had been less than seven years since the United Kingdom and France had signed the treaty agreeing to work together on the development of a supersonic passenger jet. Nevertheless, by March 2nd, 1969, Concorde was widely criticised as overdue, over budget, a vainglorious boondoggle. There were additional suspicions that, far from opening the skies to the masses in the manner of the Boeing 747, which had made its maiden flight in the United States just a few weeks previously, Concorde would end up serving as a subsidised indulgence of the wealthy. These suspicions would be substantially justified. But when Concorde was towed out of its hangar, only the most doggedly flint-hearted hairshirt wearer could possibly have cared. Even before its mighty Rolls-Royce engines were gunned, Concorde was beautiful not only in how it looked, but in what it represented. Ambition, cooperation, possibility. The all-important final pre-flight check carried out by Chief Pilot André Toka and his crew went without a hitch. This was it. Concorde's first flight lasted only 27 minutes and at distinctly subsonic speed. It would not be pushed through the sound barrier until later in 1969, after making its public debut at that year's Paris air show and apparently after changing gender. So Concorde 001 zoomed up, but the sky wasn't empty. Twin 002 was up there, all the way from England. The supersonic Anglo-French brothers of the air made a thrilling sight. Then it was cheerio, or au revoir, whichever language applied. 002 went home and 001 touched down. For everyone, it had been a meeting of Concorde, the aviation thrill of the decade. The early buzz around Concorde had been promising. Expressions of interest came not only from Air France and British Airways, but from several American carriers, plus Air Canada, Qantas, Air India, Japan Airlines, Singapore Airlines, Lufthansa, Sabina, Middle East Airlines and Iran Air. A glorious new era of air travel beckoned. London to New York in barely three hours, Paris to Dakar in two and a half, Singapore to Sydney in four. Twenty minutes out of London comes the moment some passengers have been awaiting with anticipation. The transition from subsonic to supersonic flight. It's what Concorde is all about. 
The acceleration through Mark 1, the speed of sound, is accomplished so smoothly that but for the cabin mark meter and an announcement from the captain, most passengers would be unaware of the transition. Almost all potential purchasers were eventually frightened off by questions of cost, maintenance and noise, and by the pall cast over the idea of supersonic air travel by the 1973 crash at that year's Paris air show of the Soviet Union's Concorde rival, the Tupolev Tu-144, derisively known as Konkordsky. Only BA, Air France, Singapore Airlines and Braniff International ever actually operated Concorde and just 20 were built, of which 14 flew commercially, never at a profit. On top of which, a truth usually only spoken in whispers was that leaving aside the fact that you were on Concorde, being on Concorde wasn't necessarily all that pleasant, certainly not compared with modern business class. More sober reminiscences recall that Concorde had no lie flat seats or television screens, that the cabin was cramped and the windows tiny, that the noise was barely less deafening inside than out, and that the air on board was infused with a waft of kerosene that not even the lavish sloshing of Dom Perignon could altogether occlude. The beginning of the end was the crash of an Air France Concorde on takeoff from Paris in 2000. Concorde's last passenger flight was a British Airways New York London service in 2003. Lifting into the skies with its characteristic elegance and the distinctive roar of the engines, there is no other aircraft like this. There will probably never be another aircraft like this. Maybe not. One American company, Boom Supersonic, began work on a new factory in North Carolina in January 2023. This will house the production line for the Overture, a swifter-than-sound jetliner designed to run on sustainable aviation fuel. Boom already claims 130 orders and options. The dream ignited on this day 54 years ago refuses to die entirely. Inside, the world's press wanted to hear Monsieur Tocca's verdict. The big bird flies, he said. It's the beginning of the big work. If that work goes well, Britain and France stand to make 4,000 million pounds and lead the world of civil aviation. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>